Hey everybody, and welcome back to BRIM, a global community at the intersection of climate innovation and social justice. My name is Thomas Guest, and this is season two, episode nine of BRIM Labs. And today we're talking about a very important subject, the food system. Recently, with the rollbacks of additional food stamps and benefits in the food system for low-income communities, this conversation with Henry Obispo should be top of mind for everybody. How do we redefine our relationship with the food we eat, and how can we feed everybody in a healthy way across the world? It's a big question, but Henry and I jump in in this conversation today to think through some potential answers like what he is building now at Born Juice and Reborn Farms. Thank you everybody so much for being here and hope you enjoy. Take care. Here we go. Uh, welcome back to Brim, everybody. And today I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Henry Obispo. And Henry, how's it going today, man? What's up? It is going quite well. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you. Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Cool. And we're catching you in between 17 different things today. So really appreciate you taking the time to jump on and um share some wisdom with us but uh tell us a little bit about you man i mean sh- i guess first of all shout out to carmen michael smith up at union theological seminary for the uh original intro um carmen's awesome but it's been a absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit over the past past few months and um you know one question i know you're such a you're a world traveler so i wanted to maybe open up the conversation with the question that I think we'll dovetail into the rest of what we're going to chat about. But um, curious to know, what's your favorite place in the world and why? <laughs> and that's a little bit of an arbitrary question, but it could be someplace you live now, have lived in the past. Um, but I'm curious sort of where that place is in the world for you and um, maybe how it's ex- uh, it's molded the the experience that you're now undertaking. Wow. I mean, those are, that's a fighting question. Um, <laughs> those are fighting words yep. uh, because I feel like, it, like <laughs> I'm uh, in many ways, I, I, um, I've traveled since I've been traveling since I was uh, very young and also living in different places. Um, since I was, I would say, um, a teen, right. Um, and I started studying abroad, um, but I would say that I, you know, I migrated to the U.S. when I was five years old from the Dominican Republic. And that's always a place, obviously, it's the root of everything for me. Um, and then landing in the Bronx um, and cementing my reality there and having been blessed to be from the Bronx is also... You know, when you have that experience of like uprooting an uprooted experience, you um, tend to think of you tend to think of places in a of favorite places in a very different way. 
And so those are by default the places that I that I love. However, um, because I've been traveling and like I've been living in different places, it really is every place I travel to and I live in, for example, is the place I love. Um, and the way I look at it is, you know, whether it was like uh, studying abroad in uh, Cuba and then deciding to spend more time there and like move there and do research there. Um, it's It was such a pivotal place for me in terms of just, you know, just culture, also shock in terms of like systems. Um, and it really shifted my entire life, you know, going to Cuba as a, uh, as a study abroad student, um, so open and like bright-eyed, it really just, it just formed um, my sort of, part of my consciousness forward um, from then on. And so I would say that that's a place um, that I feel, you know, it's one of my favorites, but then I moved to Brazil. And, hey. <laughs> and, and then that, I mean, it changed my whole life also um, to the point that I was able to just see a different perspective, but all, also it allowed me to connect the dots in ways that I hadn't before because, you know, it's just such a special place also that allows you to um, see things with a different perspective. It's a different language that I had to acclimate to. And so many similarities to the Dominican Republic, to Cuba, and even to the Bronx. And it's yeah. as if almost like if you mix those three parts together, three places together, it was almost like you got Brazil. You got, mm. you know, and that's how it felt for me. Um, and that allowed me to connect a lot of dots when it comes to just like globally, thinking globally and just like, you know, yeah. historically. Um, so I would say is all of that. And then currently, I love Oaxaca, right? I've been going to Oaxaca for so this past year, like four times. Um, Amazing. And it's a, it's a, it's been life changing to engage there. Um, so I, I, I don't have one place. I have all the places. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. And I think that's one of the reasons why you and I, you know, initially really connected was this global experience that we were both, you know, proactively hoping to seek out um, and allowing those different places to kind of play their own roles in molding our visions of ourselves, but also, you know, what we wanted to work on and how, right. And I, I'm curious, and maybe this is a good question. So going back to Cuba and studying abroad, um, I know that they're, you know, maybe I'm taking one leap too far here, but their food system is amazing, right? When you think about creating organic land and, um, you know, a lot of the ways that they actually distribute and produce food is very different than most of the world in terms of their localization. Um, but it, is that sort of where you started to think about food or, um, you know, I'm curious, and that's a lot of what you're working on now, which we'll get into more, but where do you think that has started to, to come from, I guess? Yeah, so, I mean, Chuba was so impactful and the ways that you mentioned, because they do have like decentralization 
um, as a result of an embargo, right? Um, and the need to produce food. And what's happened there is that they've had to create this hyper-local model um, in cities before anyone was thinking about cities, the sort of like ideas of like production um, locally in that way, they had to because, you know, post-Soviet Union there, like their system just collapsed. Um, and so there had to be new ways of engagement with food. And that's in many ways how people um, were able to do it. Um, so that is, that definitely um, was an eye-opener for me. Um, and also on the flip side, like the realities of like rations there, because um, there are sort of, because of the collapse, there are, um, you know, you, there are subsidies rather. And so the subsidies and, you know, how food gets distributed by way of these subsidies and the times of ration because of that collapse um, for there to be, for the system sort of like to maintain. It, it's just, it's, I mean, there's so many levels um, and it's just, it's been so impactful um, for the population there to live through these components, through, the, through these sort of like um, meandering sort of like ways, right? Um, so that was definitely powerful to like engage like on the ground with food there. Um, but the other place that really, you know, I would say that for me, the, uh, the, the place that really cemented that was my childhood. Um, and, you know, growing up in the Dominican Republic and being able to have this proximity to food mm. and this sense of wonderment. Um, around nature was very, I would say, just revolutionary for me. I was always gravitating to to nature in that way and always found a way to sort of be connected to it by way of like an obsession that I had possibly with like fruits. I was yeah. really at a very early age a fruitarian. Um, nice. And I had just a, this, 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 desire to just like experiment with fruits etc and so I started very early with that and you know I also started engaging with food and like you know creating juices out of that I remember at three years old I started cooking um in in the backyard and I was just given a you know I was allowed to do that and to experiment and so I started making a whole bunch of things and just like creating my own world around food and third, also like being in Brazil and engaging in what, you know, they call the favelas and seeing also uh, a project through there by way of my, uh, by way of a partnership uh, there with an organization, I was able to now, you know, engage food and contextualize it um, in, in a different way in a way that is, you know, you're thinking of marginalization and it brought me back to the Bronx, which is in many ways similar in that respect. And that's where I started connecting all the dots. Yep. Um, and it, it, 
it really translated to me on the ground in the Bronx and how I ended up moving forward. Um, connecting all those dots with it's like my early desires, um, my my love of the environment, um, and the lack of certain things in the Bronx, and knowing then as an adult that it's you know all by design, it's systematic, and then seeing examples how people, especially people of color throughout these countries, live, and knowing that it's really a result of you know this you know, racial injustice and, and an extension of, you know, whether it's slavery or um, a really sort of um, tough capitalism that allows for these systems to be sustained. Yeah. Well said. And it's, it's such an amazing story from the DR to the Bronx, to Cuba, to Brazil, to Mexico. You speak Four languages, <laughs> five languages. I, I, uh, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. Okay, there you go. I mean, um, I that's one of the things that you know for me as I was traveling around, especially in the last couple of years. Um, you know, food became something that everyone connected around, right? I mean, no matter where you were in the world, you had an opportunity to sit down around a table and meet someone new. Um, to have something, it, it reminds me of almost like soccer as well, or football as the world calls it, where you can go anywhere in the world and say, who, who do you support? Right. And you have an immediate connection and food is very much like that for me. Um, and then when you think about how that, you know, plays out in different parts of the world where you have these concepts called food deserts, right. That I think people are starting to know more and more about, but food deserts exist in very specific places for specific reasons, right. That are systemic. So um, maybe that's a good transition point to talk about some of the stuff that you started working on in the Bronx and um, you know, where, where you saw that, that challenge, maybe a potential, you know, local solution you could build. Yeah. Um, so you know, there was a real contrast when I was obviously a kid in the Dominican Republic. And in many ways, we had, we had, we weren't, we didn't have certain resources, but there was this connection to the food that was growing um, around us. And, you know, the forces that be in many ways, there are the, the, the pulls and, and push factors. Um, the push factors out of a place like the Dominican Republic um, and sort of like not having certain resources, but less, but having food, um, sort of you realize that, you know, systems were coming in and that pushed you in many ways out of or certain rural areas to go to either cities and then from cities like you just moved abroad because now you couldn't really sustain yourself. Um, and that's essentially what, you know, what happens to a lot of people and what happens to a lot of Dominicans, what happened to my family? Um, because I do recall that we had enough to eat and that the food was available. Now, as things transitioned, um, now there was need for other things that now you needed money for, right? Mm -hmm. And so now there were just these pressures that pushed you out um, and make you seek refuge somewhere else. Um, and so, 
then the contrast to that was then the South Bronx. So I mentioned was like, man, it was one of the most powerful um, experiences of my life to just be able to, you know, be in that space, not knowing necessarily the language at the age of five and observing and just like being really just, you know, foreign. And, but at the same time, um, having a sense of familiarity um, with the place um, in the sense that there was so much culture and there was so much, it was just so alive. Mm. Um, just, I mean, it was just everywhere. Culture was everywhere. Hip hop was everywhere. Art was everywhere. Um, and so there was a contrast in the sense that, you know, now it was all concrete in this way, right? Mm. Where before it was more rural where I lived. Um, and as a result of that, food was different, right? And so when you're in that world, um, now you adapt. And so in adaptation, you engage in ways, you know, like other people engage. And there's also that component of survival that happens. And so, you know, a lot of people in my neighborhood were surviving. Um, and so that looked like a million different things, but when you're in it, you don't even sometimes understand what you're in. Um, and it's only when you're out of it that you can contextualize it. And that's what I speak of mm. when I speak of have, being able to travel and connecting the dots. It was that, oh, there's a bigger thing here that, you know, these things are not, they're not um, by chance. Certain things are not by chance especially food and certain groups of people and how that relationship has been in many ways fractured, again, by design. And so in the moment when you're in it, it's almost like you just accept your reality. Um, and so it's really when you're plucked out and then me coming back in after having lived in Brazil and like having all these contexts and all this stuff, um, that I realized that, man, like, you know, I, this is, this is my home. And um, I was now seeing things in a very different way. And I asked myself, essentially, like, what could I do? Um, and it was through that question and really like waking up to the realities on the ground that I started inquiring and I started engaging with organizations and people. And dis I started discovering more about about the history, right? Um, and about the people that had been fighting and the people that had been engaging in resistance around all of these things. And then you, you start peeling back the onion and you realize that, you know, it's just it's bigger and, and, and larger and that it's systematic and that there are people and they have been people for generations like trying to figure this out and trying to bring solutions. And I was fortunate to partner um, with an organization that allowed, again, allowed me the freedom to really go deep. Um, I was able to get a, a grant from the USDA and I started canvassing the South Bronx um, in, a very, in a very different way because I, you know, I knew the Bronx obviously as I knew it, uh, but with, you know, new contacts. Now I had 
access to different questions and I had access to a different point of view. Um, and as a result of that grant, I was able to scour the South Bronx from a solutions-based approach, thinking about food and solutions. Okay, you know, we've been here for six decades. Um, let's find out what it was that we did, document these things, and then see after six months of like engagement, see where those gaps were. And it was that that allowed me to say, oh my gosh, like this has been done, that has been done, but what if this was done with that? And actually nobody did this, actually somebody did that. Um, yeah. It was just seeing everything and seeing certain gaps and then me deciding to fill those gaps. Very cool. So you're leading me right into <laughs> the next question. How, how did you feel them? Um, that, I think you started out with born juice, right? And I know it's more than just a juice and it's, it's, a, it's a community approach and it involves education and, um, you know, a reintroduction to land. Um, and I know that in the last couple of years, you've even transitioned and evolved further into this really amazing scalable model with reborn farm. So I'll, I'll let you tell the the story, however you, you like to tell it. But um, I love that positioning of taking the time with that grant to canvas and do a listening yeah. tour and with the intention of, you know, where are the gaps and how, how could, how could we fit in? So I, I love that approach. Yeah, I, I feel like that was, that's what changed everything for me. Um, and what allowed me also, what allowed everyone to, essentially it allowed everyone to also know me. Um, because here I was, I wasn't thinking of it from that perspective, but here I was because I was the one that wanted to know. Um, and I wanted to figure certain things out because I wasn't, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really in the know as to like what had been done here, what's going on. And what it did is that, you know, I received all this knowledge, but also it introduced me to everyone. And- yeah. Community organizing. You know, <laughs> yeah. And it later dawned on me like, hey, it only dawned on me like later that I was like, oh my God, uh, I actually know everyone now um, yeah. as a result of this. And essentially what I started doing was community organizing. Um, and it was just a really powerful, powerful experience. Um, one that I, in many ways, emulated from my grandmother because she was community. And in many ways, I saw, um, um, I saw her live in community in, in a very specific way that was so true and so just um, was so impactful. And that's how I knew how to be. And so that's how I engaged. And so it was that world that now allowed me to um, bring back that which I already, you know, there was yeah. this, this whole, there was this whole thing of like, you know, I'm going to, I was going to get a PhD and I was going to, you know, continue on school, et cetera. And then it was, it was in Brazil that I realized that that wasn't my path but I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. And it was in Brazil that I said, I, I can't, I'm not moving forward with this, but I don't know what I'm gonna do. And it was there a year later that I realized that I wanted to be a social entrepreneur. And I don't know what I was gonna do, but I wanted to do good in whatever I did. And 
when I got back to the Bronx, I realized and it dawned on me that I already knew what I wanted to do and that I had already been doing it since I was three years old. And that is engaging with fruits, engaging with food and making juices, just like I did when I was three years old, yes. period. It's that simple. And so it was me sort of like going back into myself to say, hey, but I already, this is what I get joy from. So let me go there as opposed to like reaching a goal that like society or whatever, or the pressures that I put on myself. And I just folded into myself in that way. And I created a social enterprise called Born Juice that essentially was to educate the population, bring um, nutritionally dense foods by way of juices to the population and build an experiential component wherever, wherever it was that we popped up. Um, and as a result of my community engagement and everybody knowing everyone and everybody knowing me, all, all these institutions, when I launched it, they wanted to be a part of it. And so, you know, the model was never defined. The community ended up defining it because they were like, can you pop up here? Can you do this? Can you do that? Cool. And then it became this, in many ways, this uh, institutional model. Uh, community institutional model where I would go to schools, where I would go to hospitals, where I would go to centers, I would go to parks, where I would go and partner with these organizations um, and build these ideas and engage born Jews like that um, through this idea of zero waste, through this idea of hyper-local sourcing, and mainly through the idea of health, right, and access. And so that was really born juice. And it just like, I don't know, I think it cracked the paradigm locally because it was these conversations of like humanity, the planet um, back in 20, uh, when we launched in 2015, 2016, um, that essentially wasn't being had. Um, and I just wanted to bring that forward and see and showcase to the population how you can't have one without the other. And that actually we have to wake up to this reality of our planet and our food and our positioning um, and all of it. Um, essentially, that was born juice. Awesome. And I, you know, once again, it's a, it's such a great story. Um, and I, I loved how you sort of you start with understanding and meeting people and literally going door to door. Then you start with you start right. You 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 put something out there. I feel like that's always one of the toughest transition points that I know I've experienced. Is you know you can go on a listening tour, you can canvas, but then like, how do you translate that into bite-sized pieces of feedback that you know you can? All right, let's start here, right? And then once you started there, you can also think about how it builds on top of itself, right? And I. That's what I think that I've really seen you guys do in the last couple of years and last year that I've known you um, is starting to think, well, what are the layers on top of that that can start to, to pile on to each other and create a snowball effect? Um, you know, one of the pieces of news that I read this week is that, you know, food stamps, I think I sent you this article, but food stamps that were sort of put in place um, or extended during 2020 in the pandemic area, sort of this emergency response are now being cut back um, in many different parts of the U.S. Um, 
And so as you think about food and localizing food, but also producing enough right, to, to feed people, I think that's also one of the other challenges is how do you build a system that can actually feed people and not just, you know, community gardens, that's their main, I'm, I'm a huge fan of community gardens and I want to start some of my own. Um, but the challenge of how do you scale that impact from an actual production standpoint is a really interesting challenge that you're getting to, um, you're getting to explore and to figure out. So I, I'm curious and maybe that's a good transition point to reborn farms and how, how you see this kind of developing at, at, at scale to feed the South Bronx. But I know you're also thinking about other parts of the world too. Yeah, um, man, it's essentially it's that. Um, so to, to the first point of um, the food stamps, and the cut, I mean, especially in a in a time where inflation is insane and food is like, I mean, anyone that's been to a grocery store understands that like, it's, you know, you're gutted, you're being gutted <laughs> but when, by trying to feed yourself, mm -hmm. um, you are, you know, you are spending so much money. Um, and for that to happen at this time is almost criminal. Um, it's criminal. Um, and that's, I mean, it just shows you the disconnect of something like that. Um, but also now when you're thinking of like what our priorities are in this country, like war, for example, or like giving aid to um, mm -hmm. Ukraine, for example, for war, not saying it's good or bad or whatever, but like there's money for that. Um, yep. Man, like I grew up on, on food stamps. I grew up on food stamps. I don't know. I don't know when it comes to like food. I don't know what would have happened to us without food stamps. Um, and to everyone I knew, seriously, everyone I knew, Everyone in my neighborhood, every one of my classroom uh, friends, that's, that was just a reality. I don't know what would have happened to us. And so as you say that, it's like, now I'm thinking about, you know, the younger me, like, I don't know what would what will happen to younger kids uh, with without that. Um, it's just really crazy to even think. And so going back to um the system and the urban reality in terms of like food and production yeah so i've worked in community gardens in the bronx and man i mean they in many ways they've been the saving grace yep. uh for a community in terms of just social interaction like i mentioned earlier in terms of like when you're thinking about the Bronx and culture and this vibrancy that was there really when I was growing up, um, certain things changed and there weren't really spaces to congregate and to engage. Like the block parties no longer were there. Now, you know, everything was permitted and everything was liability and it kind of killed culture. Um, and the way that we engaged growing up, it like, the fertile ground was like almost 
dried um, as a result of, you know, policy and whatnot. Mm. And so the community gardens continued actually to hold space for people. Um, so when that, that cultural component, I mean, they are so important um, because in many ways it was, they saved culture um, the way we know it in terms of gathering. Um, and then when it comes to food, they also allowed, you know, a vast uh, number of people to stay connected to the ground, um, whether it was seasonal, because obviously it's mostly like spring, summer for the most part. Um, but there was, you know, an escape um, in the city and in the Bronx with these community gardens, and they're so important. Um, but, or rather, and um, that could go hand in hand with other uh, ways to engage with food, like yeah. the ways that we are. Um, so for example, Reborn Farms, we are creating a decentralized food system that focuses on agricultural technology. What is that? Aeroponics, uh, hydroponics. Um, our first iteration of that is on public housing, um, which is the first one of its kind on public housing nationally. And it's a farm that will allow us to produce food hyperlocally, but also just thinking um, in terms of like a systematic approach, it's about engagement, but it's about connecting food to people and sort of like doing away with these ideas of like these trickle down ideas. One that food eventually gets to you because yeah. from, I don't know, from the, from the heavens or something or that, or that money eventually gets you like that trickle down economics um, uh, theory. You know, they go hand in hand. Um, and so that's never worked. It's not true. And unless you center um, the solutions where the needs are, then you're not doing anything. Um, and you're not really going to reach the impact. And so that's our way forward. It's our mission to center the people um, and bring in solutions. Again, the solutions-based approach, right? That which is how I started in this yep. work. Um, and that essentially guides us um, and guides the way forward, which is let's connect community, let's make food available, let's connect um, local industry to this food as well. Let's connect schools, let's connect restaurants, let's connect institutions, let's connect public housing, um, and let's build a web around this food. Let that web also serve as an economic development component that will allow for people now to, you know, have a viable economic life um, by way of food. How can we do that? Um, let's add this educational component that will allow people now to engage in the system um, and empower themselves and uphold the system. Um, and so all those components are Reborn farms. So awesome! And how, how's it going? I know it's a, this is a new it's a new venture, right? I mean, it's a new arm of the venture. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, you know, we built uh, a pilot 
that lasted about four years. We piloted this. Um, and that pilot was called the Bronx Salad Initiative. And that initiative really, you know, looked in, uh, we partnered with 35 local immigrant restaurants um, to launch the Bronx Salad. And there we launched a small hydroponic farm uh, in the South Bronx. We engaged with the local hospitals, nine elementary schools, cultural institutions like the Bronx Museum, and Bronx Works, et cetera, and really to engage in a Bronx-wide sort of way. Um, and we learned so much. We learned what worked, what didn't work, what people liked, what they didn't like, um, how we should be engaging in community around food, um, who gets to say what people eat, right? Um, who imposes certain things, uh, whereas the cultural uh, aspect of this food. So all of these things that were like, that came up or like were preempted or we realized or we failed at, all of these things, right? Because that's what the pilot essentially allows you to do. Yeah. Um, for four years, we did this and we learned so much and now, we are launching that this summer um, with those components that will allow us now to take the best parts of the model um, of the pilot and solidify it um, in our first iteration, which is on public housing. Um, yes. Awesome. How is it that you're the first group to, to partner with public housing? Has, is that, is that a tough route in or is, is it just people have not, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I know the answer most likely, but um, curious what your route into that partnership looks like. Um, and is that how you see the model scaling from like an actual place-based approach um, into other parts of the city or parts of the country or uh, curious, curious for that entry road in and then what you see is like the the model forward as well. Yeah, so there's a part. It's an interesting partnership because it's um it's a different model uh, of partnership um, um, because it's you know a, a collaborative partnership that allows um, NYCHA and HUD and then um, a developer that built. Um, it's one of the newer buildings in NYCHA that allows for something like this to be birthed. Um, so NYCHA partners with a lot of people um, and a lot of, uh, I would say, organizations and institutions. Um, mm. And they, they partner with people that, that also engage in art agriculture in the more traditional way on certain grounds in NYCHA. This is specifically very different than that. Um, it's um, it's a non more non-traditional, um, you know, by no means are we saying that this is the best way forward uh, because soil is always the best way forward yeah. from my understanding. Um, but when you're talking about the realities on the ground in the South Bronx and places like that in an urban environment, yeah. you need to produce food year round and have a level of resiliency that systems 
and te certain technologies allow for. And that is where our model comes in. Cool. So you've been so generous with your time <laughs> and it's so cool to see how the, the story has progressed over time and the building blocks to, to where you are now. And clearly the, the vision to where you're going is so exciting. Um, you know, I'm curious, especially, you know, from your global mindset, from the reality that you feel in your own community and beyond, um, this is sort of a high level, uh, ambitious question, but, you know, what does a new food system look like? I think one of the things that we think about at Brim is we challenge ourselves to envision real utopias, as we call them, right? Things that um, I love might that. seem, you know, far-fetched or out of scope, but that's really just because the system that we're in currently doesn't allow for it or um, isn't focused on prioritizing those things. But that's not a reason why you shouldn't be visualizing them and working towards them. Right. So um, I'm curious in your mind, like, what does a real utopia in the food system look like to you? My gosh, I, I feel like that is that's where I always live. Yeah, um, I always live there. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I am in terms of like trying. And, you know, it's been like almost a decade of me in this work. And it's what keeps me going, dreaming. I have to dream. And if I can see it, then for sure it can exist. Um, yeah. And that's really how I think about everything. Um, it's, you know, it's in dream world and or utopia um, that I like to exist. Um, because, I mean, personally, it's just a better place to be. Um, yep. to, to be in that place of like, as I mentioned when I was a kid, that I'd be in wonderment about, you know, trees and plants and all of these things. I'm still in wonderment about possibilities and about things working and things connecting. Um, and so I see a world where, you know, there are certain realities that are, um, that we're confronting with our planet. Um, and so us, just answering that, I also see a world where there is more sovereignty um, with people and that in increasingly we are gaining that because also, um, you know, our world is shifting around us and we have to think in a very different way. And this can be an opportunity for us to now it can galvanize us to now break from certain things. Um, just like COVID, the tragic reality that hit us so hard, it just hit us in a way that like woke us up to certain things. Like food. Food was like the main thing, like access to food. Who doesn't have it? Well, most people, a lot of people don't have it. People woke up to the reality that there's scarcity because they now had to confront certain things, even though they never had in the past and so it is this that now allows you to engage in a different way because once you know something you can't unknow it um or maybe you'd rather be in denial um but i choose not to and a lot of people also make the choice not to do that 
And so the vision is more sovereignty. And that looks like spaces that allow for people to have access, for people to create their own access and for people to uphold that access. And that access not be relegated to um, a powerful institution or a powerful system, um, that it is decentralized and that um, people have a way of making decisions about what grows, how it's sold, how is how it's you know mitigated, what it what it's what it's doing to the community, um, the specifics that could answer certain um, to certain issues in the community um, in terms of like what people are growing, the nutrition or the nutritionally dense components to the to these foods in a very, I would say, um, poignant way because it answers to their needs. Um, and that's why decentralization is so important because it's it's based on the immediate need in that immediate space. Um, it has and doesn't have to be connected to the space next door or the or the space beyond. It speaks to that reality on the ground. And that's the opportunity that we can tailor that. And that's what some technologies can allow for, right? Um, is it the end all to agriculture to access? No, because we need soil, we need, you know, we need to have healthy, um, vibrant soil. Um, but again, when you're speaking about a place like the South Bronx, when you're speaking about um, places that have been disinvested, when you're thinking about um, high comorbidities when it comes to health, when you're thinking about, um, you know, one of the, I would say, um, when you're thinking about poverty, one of the poorest areas in urban areas in the country, then you have to think about food in a different way. And the fact that you don't have the land immediate to you. Um, that is why decentralization is so uh, important. And that is why it's such an opportunity. Yeah. Well, you got me feeling like I'm back in school, just typing away notes over here. So <laughs> um I appreciate you dropping that wisdom and um, lots of incredible nuggets that that everyone should be learning from you. So um, really appreciate you spending some time with us today, Henry. And um, I'm going to make sure that, uh, you know, all these stuff, all these things that you've mentioned that you're working on, um, you know, we get it out to the people working on Brim and thinking about Brim stuff. But um you know, there's just a lot more that I hope we can continue to work on together, uh, especially as two New York City boys <laughs> um, and thinking about about food. So, um, you know, really appreciate it, Henry. And thanks for thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you and with your audience in general. Um, I'm looking forward to the continued engagement and collaboration for sure and to expanding that um, beyond. So thank you.